This is an ABC podcast. We acknowledge Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the traditional custodians of lands, waterways and skies across Australia. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and future. I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, many people have lost many things and still living with blackened landscapes, silent landscapes or dramatically changed landscapes. When a disaster, like a fire or a cyclone, rips through a landscape, it can have an impact on us as human beings for a whole lot of reasons. When we're in those environments after, it can feel overwhelming. Scarred landscapes, broken earth, really dramatic changes to colours, no sounds of animals, insects and leaves. It can make us feel distressed, disoriented and devastated. I've gone through landscapes that have been altered by all sorts of disasters, and I know what that can feel like. I'm Kate Brady, and today on After the Disaster, we'll be getting an understanding of how we as humans are impacted by the damage to the environment around us. You know, there's a lot of research around in terms of showing that your exposure and time in the natural environment makes a difference to our well-being. Susie Nethercote-Watson has had an impressive career across the military, government and private sectors. But I'm actually talking to her because she's been a wildlife volunteer for over 20 years. And a few years ago, she established a charity called Two Green Threads to support wildlife carers. I grew up in um, metropolitan and industrial Wollongong in New South Wales uh, and really... um, didn't have a lot of connection to the environment um, and had obviously pets but not a lot to wildlife. And over um, the course of, you know, life as it progresses when you leave home, um, my husband and I ended up moving to a rural property after living in, you know, some typical suburban type entities for a while. And it was essentially as a result of driving on the roads to and from work that you, I mean, you know, clearly you're moving to a rural property because you've got some level of connection and desire to be part of that environment. But in addition to that, it was the commencement of exposure directly to wildlife and some of the unfortunate difficulties that they find themselves in as a result of living in a world with humans. So seeing this need, Susie became a wildlife carer and volunteer but she also became interested in understanding why the natural environment made her feel how it did. Interestingly, the things that Susie found have been supported by other research, like a study of people affected by the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria. That study showed that while people who had a strong connection to the natural environment experienced considerable grief at the devastation, seeing the environment regenerate over the months and years later gave them a sense of solace and hope. This data indicated that a strong connection to the natural environment was linked to reduced psychological distress and fewer symptoms of mental illness following the fires. There's things like, um, they call them fractals, which is a mathematical term. There's fractals in, in nature that appeal to our sense of order and our sense of soothing. So that's the, you know, the, the order of, a, of petals on a flower or the veins in a leaf or the shape of the bark on a tree or the you know, construct of the leaves on a branches. There's also you know, a lot of work on um, Jap- Japanese uh, research called forest bathing where apparently, and I'm not gonna say it right, the leaves actually give off a photon cell or something it's called, which is actually a, 
you know, uh, um, femorone, which connects to us and helps us soothe. The breath and cycles of nature as well, you know, uh, waves going out and coming in or the wind, you know, there's another layer there that our senses pick up on. And then there's, a, I think, an emotional connection um, that comes from a sense of place and where we're part of. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, really do feel has made a difference to me is that it's given me a sense of perspective about how small I am in this complex world and how, um, you know, that time with nature and with wildlife, I find gives a sort of sense of stillness in a frantically spinning human context um, that I just really relate to and can appreciate when people say, you know, you need to get out in nature and what difference it makes. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to be on a rural property that enables me to have that, you know, when I want. It, I just find that very, very special. Considering this, um, you know, multifaceted connection that you're describing that we have with nature and the influence, the, that interplay that we have on it and it has on us, what, how do you think disasters impact that relationship or disrupt that relationship? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question and I think, you know, probably the obvious part to start on that is the, the physical change that we see. And, you know, we're, if we're talking bushfires, for example, which, you know, that even that word will immediately relate to a lot of people in the last few years, from a connection to environment and what you're then seeing is that you've lost, it, it becomes this monochromatic landscape with no sound, with no layers of life, um, you know, with no movement. It's it's devoid of what we give that sense of life and um, what I talked about with the sort of breath and cycles and sound and energy. Um, not trying to get too hippie there, but in terms of, you know, I think that's where there's an immediate impact in terms of just um, the the loss of that life, you know, um, scenery in terms of what's in front of us, and it, it just becomes black and silent. Um, if we're talking about fires, and that differs obviously di across different types of disasters, um, but it changes that physical landscape in front of us that previously offered a visual and mind and emotional connection. Another way that some people describe their reaction to the dramatic changes to the landscape that disasters can bring is a sense of being homesick. There's a term for this. It's called solastalgia. It means that even though you might be at home, you miss it. There's a grief for the place that you're in, as it was. As Susie says, this connection to the natural environment has an impact on all of us, but it's even stronger for some people than others. For example, if your family has lived on the land for generations, farming and working on that same land together, you'll have a connection to the place emotionally, and of course economically. And for Indigenous Australians who have a deep cultural connection to place, this connection is so strong, it's fundamental. My name is Bayami Williamson. I'm a Uwadio man from northwest New South Wales and I also have family ties into northwest Queensland. Um, I'm a PhD candidate and research associate at the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at Australian National University. 
to understand how Indigenous people are impacted by disaster, you need to really understand how they're connected to the land. Um, and so like that's the foundation stone. Their people's cultural livelihoods and their identity, like it's inherently tied to the land. Like Indigenous is by definition people who are from a place, whose cultures, whose ways of life, whose worldview, whose cosmology, whose diets, whose language, like the whole thing is tied to particular parts of the land. Um, and so what happens when that land really starts to change and, and especially you know through the through kind of the more solar impacts such as climate change but um but accelerating disasters as a result of climate change so what happens when all of these little these little parts of what makes a people a people um start to disappear um or a, or, or a group of them disappear entirely because of the impacts of one event such as the bushfires it really calls into question the cultural continuity of the community, whether that community continues to exist in the way that it did before, um, you know, and these are all um, really important things to to understand because then it's kind of like it's there by understanding that Indigenous people are connected to the land, you can understand that the way they're impacted by um, disasters to the land is very different. As we know, Australia is a large country made up of many different Indigenous nations. And there are specific cultural connections in different places. So these connections need to be understood at a local level, but Biomi says that there are still some similarities across the country. There is a lot that's shared between Indigenous groups. Um, and those, you know, those, those things that are shared have been, uh, that existed before, but then have, we also have common histories of colonisation now as well. But I think that understanding that people are not all the same, that people do have different needs. And those needs are usually responded to the land, like people who are from the desert are going to be very different to people who are from the ocean. And they're going to be very different to people who are from mountains, you know, and they're going to be different again to people who are from islands. Um, well, it's not, not dissimilar to, um, to supporting local non-Indigenous communities as well. I mean, you know, the way you would support inner city Melbourne to recover from a major, you know, major natural event, it's going to be very different how you support people in Bendigo. It's going to be very different how you support people in Far East Gippsland, um, different economies, different landscapes, different, um, you know, uh, histories in local communities. And so you can't, well, whilst there are commonalities that are shared and people need the basics, um, you know, to, but to really support local communities to recover requires knowing the local communities and requires working with people in local structures and organisations and leaders within that community. What that means is that the connection that Indigenous Australians have to the environment is important to understand, but these communities also need the support the broader community needs after a disaster. Be it grief counselling, accommodation support or financial assistance, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people still need these more commonly understood post-disaster supports. It's just that some of that support will need to be targeted and people will need to be specifically trained. For instance, when we're talking about counselling and grief support, there are layers that need to be understood. When we talk to Indigenous peoples about, say, for example, using the, the bushfires, the blacks, um, black summer bushfires, um, we talk to people about the trauma associated with that. What they, It's really interesting because they don't, look at it as an isolated event 
Indigenous peoples also see the actual fires themselves in the environmental um, emergency as being linked to their um, their marginalisation and their kind of um, their, their forced removal from their homelands and their ongoing marginalisation in their management. And that is also a source of, you know, historical trauma and grief. And in fact, that they're not allowed to be who they are, practice their culture, look after their lands, fulfill their cultural responsibilities. Um, but then you go, it goes further back than that as well. They're marginalised because of the impacts of kind of colonisation, the removal of children from their country, um, being removed to missions and reserves, you know, being controlled and all this kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of linked to that. And then even before that, they, you know, people talk about invasion times and people talk about, you know, whole communities being wiped out is Indigenous peoples just exist in this big, in, you know, within a chain of disasters. Um, and they place themselves along that, that those different kind of, you know, the parts of that chain. And so it's not one disaster, it's, com it's cascading and compounding disasters as well. One feeds into the other, feeds into the other, feeds into the other, and they're all directly linked. This heightened grief is very real and complex for Indigenous communities after a disaster. And in post-disaster settings, a lot of people aren't yet being properly trained in how to support these different layers of trauma, which then leads to extra challenges for communities after a disaster. The connection Indigenous communities have to land also provides a different perspective in the whole approach to emergency management. So in emergency management, the priorities, the, the priorities you know, are pretty clear, consistent, and um, they go you know, life, property, environment in that order. And so when people are making decisions in an emergency about what resources to use, how much to use, where they're going to deploy kind of certain assets, um, you know, it, it's all focused around those kind of three things, life, property, environment. Indigenous peoples um, see it a completely different way. And so for Indigenous peoples, it's like the environment comes number one because we live in the environment. You know, we build houses in the environment and so it's about environmental management looking at a holistic way like how environments are integrated um, and foregrounding environment as well that lives and property exist within and so it's, it's it's kind of like you can't you know you can have an environment that doesn't have human life you can have an environment that doesn't have built assets yeah but you can't have built assets without having a natural environment around it it's just the, you know, so, so it it stands to reason that environments kind of should be the the first the first um, the first priority really in response and in, in and in planning and how we manage the uh, ma manage you know um, uh, disaster threats as well into the future. This connection and deep impact that disasters have on Indigenous communities is something we can all learn from. Because as Susie said before, we all have some emotional and physical connections to the environment around us. And for the people who work on the land, who have historical links to the land, or who have deep memories of place, the impact of disasters that damage the environment is heightened. As a wildlife volunteer, Susie has found her connection to the animals and the impact on them is very deep. We have a really strong connection to them in terms of spending so much time and getting to know their personalities because their personalities are very, very different. 
according to you know which species you're doing and you know how they like their milk and you know how warm they want to be kept and whether they play a lot or they're quiet or they're feisty you know there's really different individual personalities so you do build a connection you're its mother and while the carer is developing this bond with the animal they're aware that they're working towards releasing that animal back into their natural environment to live a full life which means that the animals you've bonded with are now living in the bush around you and you've got a good understanding of what they're facing now. So, you know, exposure to predation because the habitat's not there for protection, um, the lack of food that might be around or the difficulty in finding food or the need to move into areas that are not, you know, known or um, of comfort or tracked or mapped in their mind. So... You know, if we're talking about the devastating Black Summer bushfires, there was years of impact from the drought that as wildlife volunteers, you are already seeing the devastating level of, um, you know, survival that wildlife was having to try and contend with. I think that's a, it's it's such a big load to carry, isn't it, um, for people who, who have that sort of very in-depth understanding of the impacts. Um, it's normal for wildlife volunteers. It should be normal and it's okay to talk about the fact that we can get impacted by what we see, not just in the normal sort of non-disaster context but also in a disaster context and post-disaster context, what that might mean for our well-being, what that might mean for our nervous systems and how we've you know, been heightened in a disaster context or constantly in a sort of first responder sense. And I'm not trying to say that I'm a mental health professional. I'm just someone who's lived this for a long period of time and trying to help my fellow volunteers understand and normalise a conversation that says it's okay to be impacted. It's okay to say that I'm carrying something and it's making it difficult for me. I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, many people have lost many things and still living with blackened landscapes, silent landscapes or dramatically changed landscapes. And what does that, what must that mean for their psyche and their connection to, you know, what was, you know, something prior that gave them a sense of belonging and understanding and mapped within their hearts and their minds. But for people that see it every day, it just, yeah, you know, all sorts of organisations have the capacity to help people work through that. And back to that message, it's okay to feel like that and it's okay to seek help to work that through because, God, it's huge. When a landscape has been drastically altered by a disaster, be it a fire or a flood or cyclone, we can feel a range of emotional reactions. A place that's meant something to us emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and perhaps also economically, has been damaged. It hurts us all in different ways. But whatever the cause, if you're feeling grief about this change in the landscape, it's important to acknowledge that grief is a real thing. Take time to acknowledge it and feel okay to talk about it. And if someone you know feels a deep sadness because of the change to the environment, be supportive and listen to them. Because this feeling is real. After the disaster has been produced with the support of Australian Red Cross and the University of Melbourne, our executive producer and editor is Liz Keane from Headline Productions. Fact checks are by Shona Witten. The supervising producer is Philip Ashley Brown and our distribution producer is Zoe Walker. Sound engineering is by Grant Walter. And I'm Dr Kate Brady. Stay connected in an emergency with ABC Radio.
your official emergency broadcaster. Find your local frequency and see incidents in your area at abc.net.au slash emergency.